The 16th century was populated by some of the greatest minds in religious history. Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Latimer, Ridley, Cramner. And sitting comfortably amongst this group of luminaries was William Tyndale, translator of the English Bible. Tyndale was born in Gloucestershire in 1494 in a small village called North Nibley, marked today by this monument overlooking the village. He was educated at Oxford and completed his BA in 1512 and his MA in 1515 before coming here to Cambridge University where he met Dutch scholar Erasmus who was teaching Greek. Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible into English but no one in England was willing to undertake such a daring task. Since 1408, the Oxford Commission had forbidden the translation of the Bible into the English language, even prohibiting its use in the training curriculum for preachers. Prochalius, a notorious papal theologian, had this perspective. The New Testament translated into the language of the people is in truth the food of death, the fuel of sin, the veil of malice, the pretext of false liberty, the protection of disobedience, the corruption of discipline, the depravity of morals, the termination of concord, the death of honesty, the wellspring of vices, the disease of virtue, the instigation of rebellion, the milk of pride, the nourishment of contempt, the death of peace, the destruction of charity, the enemy of unity, the murderer of truth. Immersed in such a climate, Tyndale encountered a learned friend who said, we were better without God's laws than the Pope's. To which Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scriptures than thou doest. Forbidden to work in England, Tyndale traveled through Europe from Hamburg to Cologne to Worms to Antwerp, using the Greek and Hebrew texts to craft a masterpiece of the English language. Time and time again, the papacy tried to stop his work, but the Lord watched over his servant. One account tells us how the Bishop of Durham, seeking to hinder his work, bought all his Bibles, but this merely provided him with the money he needed to produce a larger number of better quality Bibles. Tyndale contributed as much to the scholarship of English literature as Shakespeare and Chaucer, producing many of the translations of the Bible that we use today. In fact, much of the King James Bible, produced 60 years later, was taken almost verbatim from Tyndale's Bible. Phrases such as, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. O death, where is thy sting? And seek ye first. All these came from William Tyndale. Today, there are two remaining copies of Tyndale's Bible, one of which is here in the British Library, purchased for one million pounds and accessible to view free of charge. 
Sadly, Tyndale was betrayed by Henry Phillips in Antwerp, who feigned friendship in order to gain Tyndale's trust and betrayed him to guards as he was leaving his house. He was taken to a castle in Vilvoord, Belgium, condemned as a heretic, strangled and burned to death in 1536. His last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Within one year of his death, a Bible was placed in every parish church throughout the whole of England by order of the king. The poignant Christian song tells us, martyr's blood stains each page. They have died for this faith. Hear them cry through the years. Oh, hear these words and hold them dear. The word of God has come to us at such great cost. May we not treat it flippantly, haphazardly, but may we treasure it and commit to study and share God's word each day. Wow, this is powerful stuff. Here I want you to, next thing I want you to see is uh, a segment of the movie God's Outlaw, which is the life of William Tyndale. And this will give you uh, a reenactment of him uh, standing for the faith and uh, the cost and the price that he paid for it. William Tyndale, the King of England has somewhat against you for crimes committed in that realm. These do not concern us. You have been arrested and stand charged with heresy in that first. You maintain that faith alone justifies. Second, you maintain that to believe in the forgiveness of sins and to embrace the mercy offered in the gospel is enough for salvation. Third, you aver that the traditions of men cannot bind the soul. Fourth, you affirm that neither the Virgin nor the saints pray for us in their own person. And fifth, you assert that neither the Virgin nor the saints should be invoked by us. How do you answer? I answer thus, with a clear conscience before God and man, that I have never maintained, affirmed, averred or asserted anything contrary to the plain meaning of God's holy scriptures. On these alone, and these alone I stand. Would you say then that faith alone justifies and not works? The fruit that grows on a tree does not make the tree good or bad. It only makes known whether the tree is a good tree or a bad tree. And works do not make a man good or bad. They only make it plain to other men 
whether he who performs those works is good or bad. A man is reconciled before God by faith alone, and works serve only to make this justification known before men. Such is the contention of the Apostle Paul, as it is written. By grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Tyndale died, there were already two Bibles circulating in England. Each effectively contained Tyndale's translation of the New Testament. Much of his work had been used for the Old Testament. When one of them, Coverdale's version, was presented to Henry VIII, he was assured by the bishops that they could find no errors in it. Then if there be no heresies in it, then in God's name, let it go abroad among the people. The following year, His Majesty authorized a small phrase of immense significance to be added to the title page of the English Bible, set forth with the King's most gracious license. On September the 5th, 1538, Henry ordered every church in England to display one book of the whole Bible of the largest volume in English. The whole Bible, printed in English, was at the heart of the Reformation in England. It remains as a memorial to William Tyndale and an answer to his dying prayer. Powerful stuff, powerful stuff. Most of these movies uh, can be seen in their entirety on the internet and uh, they're just good. But if you look at your notes, I want you to see today that we are still tempted. This isn't just something that was in the past. The Reformation was a structure, uh, a struggle, in fact, a war between Scripture alone versus Scripture plus. But today we're still tempted to let many things have equal or greater authority in our lives. And we looked at those three 
options that we have in relation to Scripture. We can either allow Scripture alone to be over all things, or we can claim it to be equal. But if you notice, I have a dotted line there, because once you make anything equal, as the Roman Catholic Church does, eventually it will mean that Scripture is under some other authority, whether that be the church, our reasoning, our experiences, or that which we simply don't like. Here's the bottom line, and I hope Tyndale's example, Luther's example, sola scriptura is not just something we say, but a lifestyle that we live out. It's a lifestyle that we live out. And I tried to bring that home to you last week in last week's lesson. But let's go back to the Bible. If we're going to teach Scripture alone, then we've got to see it in the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is the basis of this week and next week's lesson. And this is the key passage. I love this passage. I love the Apostle Paul. I love the pastoral epistles. And this is just, these are his last words. We heard Tyndale's last words. These are his last words, and they were written under inspiration by the Holy Spirit to his disciple Timothy and to the church, and their laser focus on the main thing. If you're going to finish well, if you're going to fulfill your ministry, then Scripture alone is not just a doctrine, it's a lifestyle. Notice what Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.14. You, however... Continue in the things you have learned. You don't outgrow Scripture. And you've become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known, notice, the sacred writings, the holy Scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You could just as easily say faith alone and Christ alone. And here's the key phrase, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, and he's speaking to Timothy, but applies to all of God's people in relation to your ministries, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so he moves in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I solemnly charge you. Look, this, these scriptures alone is how you were saved. Scripture alone is how you have grown. And scripture alone is how you're going to impact the lives of others. So I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Man, he could have said so many things. So many things there. Sharpen your leadership skills. Work on your relationship. There's many things. But when we stand before God and answer for our lives and ministry, did you base it on the Word of God alone? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He almost parallels The very things that Scripture does is what we are to do with Scripture. And the only way you can do those things is if you use Scripture to do them. And then he goes on, he says, For the time will come, and it has come, 
When they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. We don't want God's Word and God's men and God's women teaching us God's Word. We want what we want to hear, and so we're going to gather people who will tell us what we want to hear. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How, Paul? Scripture alone. Okay? And then he says in verses 6 through 8, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering for the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. How did, how did he do all those things? He just told Timothy how he did it. Based on Scripture alone. And then come down to verse 13. This is classic. Paul is in prison. He knows he's, he knows that he is soon to be martyred, just like Tyndale. And here's what he says in verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments. Right down to the last minutes in a dungeon, dank, cold, with life on the edge. What's he want? He wants the Word of God right up to the end. And it's interesting that Tyndale made a similar request when he was in prison before he went to the stake to be burned. He was cold, and in the only known letter we have written in his own handwriting, he says this, If I am to remain here in prison during the winter, will you be kind enough to send me a warmer cap? For I suffer extremely from cold. A warmer coat also. For that which I have is very thin. And he goes on and he requests several pieces of clothing. He nearly died of frost, uh, of, of, of freezing to death. But then he says, he says, I also wish to have permission to have a candle in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent and kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible my Hebrew grammar, and my Hebrew dictionary that I may spend my time with that study right up until the time that he died. So what is it about Scripture alone that causes these men and women throughout church history to literally stake their lives on it and even be willing to go to the stake for it? Well, here's our definition of Scripture alone. The Bible is uniquely necessary. It is uniquely necessary as our final authority in bridging the gap to know and glorify God. There's a great chasm that exists between us and God. How can we know Him? How can I live a life to glorify Him? Scripture alone is uniquely necessary to bridge that gap. Now, here's my best simple definition of Scripture alone. It's this. The Bible is uniquely necessary. And the reason I say unique, I could use the biblical word for uniqueness, and that's holy. The Bible is holy, holy, holy. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in this passage. Look again in your Bible in verse 15. Look at verse 15. He calls the Scriptures... In the New American Standard, in the ESV, the sacred writings. 
Literally, the NIV has it very well translated, the Holy Scriptures. And the NIV even capitalizes it to say, this is a book like no other book. And it used to be that on the front of our Bibles, it would be printed, Holy Bible. Literally, a the unique book. Because it's God's book. It's God's book. It's the very Word of God. It's God speaking to us. And because it's God speaking and God never lies, the Bible doesn't err in what it tells us. Wow, that's just cool. It's the very Word of God. It's God speaking to us. And because it's unique in this way, it's absolutely necessary. If you set this aside, there's nothing that can take its place and do what it does and reveal to you what it reveals. There's no other way, there's no greater way, there's no reliable, more reliable way, there's no more authoritative, authoritative way to know and glorify God than that book that I hope you have in front of you, whether digital or in print. And the reason why the Bible is uniquely necessary is four words that can be gathered right there from 1 Timothy 3. Authority, inerrancy, clarity, and sufficiency. We're going to look at authority today and uh, uh, clean up whatever we don't get to and look at the other three next week. Now, in your notes, I have a great book, a quote from a great book, God's Word Alone. Matthew Barrett just recently hired at Midwestern, our neighbors down the road. And his, in his recent book on God's Word Alone, he, he defines sola scriptura in this way. Only scripture. It means only scripture because it is God's inspired word and is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. Now, you might say, you know, there's a couple words in there I'm not familiar with. We're going to become familiar with them. We're going to teach you what that means. Now, I've included on your table three handouts. One in the tan is the London Baptist Confession. And it's from 1689, doctrinal statement written by a group of English Baptists, later adopted by Baptists in America. And it's a historical doctrinal statement that still today is held by many Baptists. Probably the best summation of everything we're teaching is right there on this sheet. Right there. I mean, as I've studied this out, studied Scripture, and then compared this with Scripture, I'm like, that nails it. So read that. Take a look at that. I also gave you the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy from 1978. It still stands as the best explanation of what we're going to talk about today and next week. Inspiration and uh, inerrancy. Let me go back. On the London Baptist Confession, circle number one, circle number six, and circle number ten. Number one, number six, and number ten. So that if you say, look, I want the cliff notes of what the London... Ba and this is just on the Word of God. It, it speaks to all things, okay? So if you want a cliff notes, uh, you, you, can take, you can look at that. On the Chicago statement, you say, Chris, no way am I reading all that. Great, read the short statement, numbers one through five, okay? Read the st short statement and then, uh, you know... Articles 1 through 5. It's just all so good, okay? I'm just showing you. And then the third is the Cambridge Declaration, which was written in 1996. And this is real easy. I'll let you just read the bottom part. Thesis 1, 
sola scriptura. Okay? Now, you say, why are you showing me? I thought we were talking about scripture alone. Why are you showing me the writings of men? Let me give you three reasons why I'm exposing you to that. First of all, they are great summaries of everything the Bible teaches about scripture alone. Me being me, it gives me confidence that I gave you this. That way, if I miss something, or if I mess something up, this will correct you. This, this, these are great summaries. And to be honest with you, in this day and age, I almost think we need to like take a day out every year and read through this kind of stuff, and read through it together. Second reason I'm giving it to you is it reminds us that Scripture alone does not mean me alone, or us alone. Okay. Sometimes we think it's real easy to think, and some people really think this. Scripture alone means I don't need to go to church. I'm just going to get alone with Scripture, and it's just me and God. I don't need anybody to teach me. I don't need to read church history. I don't need to have any other. But it's all Scripture. Don't don't bother me with these doctrinal statements. Okay. But that's not what it means. Listen, these. These are tradition used in the right way. These are the statements from the body of Christ, from pastors and professors and scholars. But even in their statements, they say that this state, these statements are under the authority of the Word of God. So it's okay to use doctrinal statements. We have one. Go on our website. You ought to look at it. Okay, it's good to have doctrinal statements, but realize periodically we change our doctrinal statement to bring it into conformity with more of what we've learned about the Word of God. Does that make sense? And that's what it is. So, you know, if if I can't find in Scripture what's on these pages, then mark through it. Right? That's what it means. Third reason I give it to you is it reminds us that Scripture alone means the Bible is our final authority, but not our only authority. It's okay to have authoritative statements. Let me tell you, if we had a crisis in our church over what the Word of God was, I'd be pulling these documents out. Okay, We'd be looking at our doctrinal statement, we'd be looking at these, and we're saying, hey, the final authority is Scripture, but it's not the only authority. And so the problem is not using other writings from church history or even recently. The issue is, what authority is the final one? Are you with me? All right, so I've exposed you to that. Uh, a, a certain segment of Baptists tend to think you can't use anything written by men, and it's just not accurate. The London Baptist Confession tells you that, okay? So I've, I've taken care of that. Now, so let's look at it. Four reasons why Scripture alone is uniquely necessary. We're only going to get to the first reason today. And the first reason is this. Authority. Authority. The Bible is God speaking uniquely with final or divine authority. Or you could even say absolute authority. I sound like I'm going through puberty today. I don't know why that is, but I'm squeaking. Um... So, the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture comes from this. It comes from what it is. God is speaking to us in a unique, uniquely with final, divine, absolute authority. One of my favorite theologians, J.I. Packer, says this in his book, one of his books on the Word of God. The problem of, of authority is the most fundamental problem that the Christian church ever faces. 
And I'm telling you, all you got to do is look on the news, and this country is in a crisis over authority. Right? We are entering into anarchy and lawlessness, and that seeps into the church. It seeps into the upcoming generations, the issue of authority. So that's why we're going to spend today on this, okay? And here's where you find the teaching and the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture comes from the inspiration of Scripture. And that's what we're going to talk about today. God's, Bible, God's Word is inspired. It's inspired. Its inspiration is what gives the Bible its authority. Now, you say, inspiration, where is that found? Look, look back in your Bibles, 15 through 16. Look at verses 15 through 16. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy in verse 15, the sacred, the holy, the unique, the set-apart writings that are God's writings, which are able to make give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then comes the most important phrase. This whole lesson is built on this phrase, and the authority of Scripture is clearly laid out. All Scripture is inspired by God. And because it is, it's profitable. Because it is, it's able to make you wise. There's an authority to the very Word of God that enables it to do things that no other person, no other book can do. Are you with me? All right, so here's what we're going to do. It came out this way. I, I had, I'm like, okay, what questions do we have to ask and answer? And there happens to be seven of them, and here they are. What does inspiration mean? Are you ready? We're going to move. All Scripture, here's what inspiration means. All Scripture is breathed out by God in the original writings that theologians call autographs. You know, they just, they just got to come up with words that throw you off. But think of an autograph. What's the significance of an autograph? The person who you want, they sign it. Okay, so the original writings are often called the autograph. We're not talking about baseball cards. All Scripture is breathed out by God in the original writings, and therefore is God Himself speaking to us. The key passage on Scripture alone, on inspiration, is 2 Timothy 3. The key phrase is, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, probably the best current translation of this word, it's a single word, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is is God-breathed. That's what inspiration means. God breathes out the Word or the Scriptures. Okay? It's one Greek word, and it means God breathes out. Now, here's the idea. Scripture is used throughout the Bible to refer to the whole Old Testament and the entire New Testament. And I can't take the time to show you that. Jesus himself refers in Luke 24. He, he says, all the scriptures speak of me. And then he says, the law, which is uh, the prophets and the, song, the, and the writings, which comprise the whole Old Testament. And then the uh, New Testament apostles call their writings 
Peter calls Paul's writing Scripture. So when it says all Scriptures, we're talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament, were actively breathed out by God, okay, by the very breath of God, by the very Spirit of God, all right? In a sense, what it's saying is this. All the Scriptures were created and came into existence when God spoke them, when God breathed them out. Now, let me give you uh, Psalm 33, 6 says this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. How did God speak creation into existence? Let there be. He spoke, and there was, right? And it equates Him speaking with Him breathing out of His mouth. When, when Paul says, God breathed, he's saying Scripture is the very speaking of God Himself. Now, here's how I want you to illustrate this. Take your hand now and put it over your mouth. Put it right up against, not, not touching your mouth, just a little bit away from your mouth. I hope you all brush. Now, I know some of you just drank coffee, so you got a little, you got to get close. You got to get about an inch away. There you go. There you go. Now, here's what I want you to say. I want you to say, all together, let's all say, the Scriptures are breathed out by God. The Scriptures are breathed out by God. Now, what did you feel? I didn't say smell. Don't, don't. What did you feel against your hand? Breath. That's what's happening. You were speaking, and when you're speaking, you're breathing out. That is what this means. The Bible... When you open, here's how I like to think. When I open the Bible, I should, I, by analogy, I'm feeling God's breath. He's speaking. He's speaking. This is God speaking to me. Now, what about the New Testament? Are the New Testament writings inspired? I already kind of gave you that. Yes. Yes, they're inspired. And I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm putting that there just to show it's complete. I have verses that you can look at. Jesus promised that when He went up, the Spirit would come down and would lead the apostles into all truth. Paul makes it clear that what the apostles were, were teaching was from the Spirit and by the Spirit and can only be understood with the help of the Spirit because the writings of the apostles were not the result of human wisdom or human words. 1 Corinthians 2, classic passage on that. And basically what he says is this. The only person... The only one that can know the mind of God is the Spirit of God because people only know human things. And so basically what he's saying is we as apostles are able to communicate to you the things of God because it's the Spirit of God that is enabling us to do it. And by the way, the only people that can fully understand this book are people who have that Spirit living in them. It's called illumination. We'll talk more about it next week. Thirdly, the apostles recognized one another's writings as being Scripture and equal to them. Peter goes, hey guys, you ever read some of Paul's stuff? Hard to understand. Can we all relate to that? He says not only that, it's because it's hard to understand, false teachers and unbelievers twist what he, say, what he says just like they do the rest of Scripture. So at the time of the writing of the New Testament, Peter's saying... See that letter from Paul? That's Scripture. That's God speaking to us. So, this stuff, listen, it's common to say today, no one knew what the Bible was until 
A bu- uh, uh, Constantine, Emperor Constantine in the 300s gathered a bunch of corrupt uh, church leaders, i.e. basically the, 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 the Roman church, and they decided what was Scripture. That's not what Scripture says about Scripture. Jesus is saying at the time that He's living, this is Scripture. This is God-breathed. The apostles are saying one another's letters are Scripture. It didn't take a church council or a Roman emperor 300 years later to tell the church that God is speaking through the Scriptures. Important to note. Question number three. If the Scripture is God speaking to us, then what role did the human authors fulfill? Well, turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. Because if you got your thinking caps on today and you're saying, well, if Scripture is God speaking, then why does Paul's teaching seem different from John's teaching? Who's your favorite biblical author? Just shout out some names. Paul? Okay, I'm with you there. That's mine. Who else? Someone like David? Somebody like the Psalms? Somebody like John? Any Gospel of John likers here? Yeah, okay. Now, is John the same as Paul? No. Are the Psalms written? No. So what role did the human authors play? Well, here's the answer in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Now look in your Bible. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And what that means is, the origin of prophecy didn't start with the human imagination, with human interpretation, insight. It didn't start with some guy saying, you know what, I got some, you know, David sitting on a mountain and saying, yeah, I look at that cloud, it kind of looks like a sheep makes me think of God and how airy and fluffy he is and then starts writing a psalm. No, it didn't it's it's of no personal interpretation. For no and 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 if you really want to understand what verse 20 means, look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by a act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Listen, no one, no human being decided this morning, I'm going to write Scripture. It didn't start with, hey, I've got some really lofty ideas about God, and I think I'm going to write them today. No act of man's will started the Scripture. So then, who does that leave? God. And it says, God moved them... Men moved by the Holy Spirit. They're passive in this. They're not actively starting this process. God is. Now, here's what's cool about that phrase, moved by, and some of your Bibles say carried along by the Holy Spirit. It means two things. Here's two things I want you to learn from that passage. One, number one, God spoke through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along so that whatever was written was what God willed to be written, yet without violating their personalities of the human authors. Now, this word, moved by, is used in Acts 27. Here's, how, here's the word picture. Okay, we did the hand. We did the hand illustration for inspiration. Are you ready for the how it happened? 
This word, moved along, this verb, moved along or carried along, is used in Acts 27 of the shipwreck when Paul was in that storm. Remember that big, huge storm? And the boat was being driven or carried along or moved by the wind to where the uh, sailors said, we can't make this ship go where we want it to go. It's being driven wherever the wind blows it. So here's what you want to think of the human authors. The human authors of Scripture were like a sail. And God's Spirit was the wind blowing. As God spoke, the wind of the Spirit filled their sails. And they wrote that which God wanted written. And yet, just like on that boat, even though the wind was driving the boat wherever the wind wanted it, do you think those sailors were like, oh, well... Let's let the wind do all the work. No, they're working. They're active. They're, they're, they're involved. And it's the same way with the reading of Scripture. God is blowing upon the will of the writers of Scripture. He's directing them by His Spirit so that what is written is what He wants written. And yet they're involved in the process and their personalities mark their writings. Okay, So, you say, now Chris, could you explain exactly how that is? Yes, I can. Look at the incarnation. In other words, I can't explain inspiration. It's the mystery of the divine in the human. And just like in the incarnation, fully God, fully man, and yet one person, it's the same mystery here. Okay? They wrote it. So here's the second thing I want you to get. The Bible is the result of dual authorship. Dual authorship. In other words, if someone asks you, did God write the Bible, what should you say? No, no. If God, God, did God write the Bible? Yeah, come on. I want to get it recorded. Did God write the Bible? Yes. yes. And yet if someone says... Did human authors write the Bible? You should equally say? Yes. yes. But here's how you do it. Here's how you write it. You say, yes. How many authors are there? Of, is there one author of Scripture? Yes. Say it again. Is there one author of Scripture? Yes. yes. Are there many authors of Scripture? Yes. yes. And here's how you do it. There is one author, capital A, who spoke through many authors, small a. And this one, this author, is the one speaking through the Bible. Okay? Again, let me quote Piper. What script, or Piper, Packer, the P's are getting me. Packer says this, What Scripture says, God says. That's it. For in a manner comparable only to the deeper mystery of the Incarnation, the Bible is both fully human and fully divine. Dual authorship. So all its manifold contents, the histories, the prophecies, the poems, the songs, the wisdom writings, the sermons, the statistics, the letters, and whatever else, should be received as from God. And all that the Bible writers teach should be revered as God's authoritative 
instruction. Fourth question, how much of the Bible is inspired? I've got to give you two more weird theological words, but you need to know them. The Bible itself teaches what theologians call verbal plenary inspiration. So, you know, tweet that out today. Hey, just want you to know I believe in verbal plenary inspiration. And that's all you say. Just put that out there and see if you get any, you know, just what happens. All right? Uh, Just be ready if someone says what that means. Now you need to tell them. Okay, and here it is. It means simply this. How much of the Bible is inspired? Plenary means all. Why they can't just say that, I don't know. Sorry. It's just how it works. Okay? Plenary needs full, all. Verbal means down to the very words. Down to the very words. Not only the very words, but to the smallest letter. And not only the smallest letter, but to the smallest jot or tittle. Thank you, Mr. Tyndale. That's Tyndale. All... Okay, so let's look at Matthew 5. Turn your Bibles, Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. You're going to have fun with this one. Okay, let's look at Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Jesus is speaking. And here's what Jesus says. Verse 17. Are you there? Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, he's saying, look, I have the authority. I'm speaking with the authority of God on this because he is God. And he says this, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus, how much of the Bible is inspired? Down to the smallest letter, down to the smallest stroke, or in the King James, jot and tittle. Now let me tell you a little bit about jot and tittling, okay? Now here's the deal. He's referring to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet and the tiniest mark. To put it into our language, smallest letter, I. I. Right? That is a jot. And that is a tittle. And so when we have the phrase, dot your I's and cross your T's, we're saying, get right down to the minutia. How much of the Bible is inspired? Dot your I's and cross your T's. Or you could say, tittle your jots. Tweet that out and see what people say, okay? Tittle your jots, okay? Dot your I's, cross your T's. Jesus and the apostles both debated doctrine based on the tense and number of the words. I've given you some references. When they were in a debate, Jesus would argue from a single word. He also would argue from the present tense instead of a past tense. Paul would argue on the basis of a word being plural or singular in order to win a debate over Scripture. Number five, what does inspiration not mean? You hear the word inspiration a lot, do you not? And it's in your Bibles. And if you're not careful, you'll read into that 2 Timothy passage our understanding of inspiration rather than the God breathed out. So here's two common ways we confuse. 
biblical inspiration, it does not mean that the human authors were inspired like a great poet or a great artist. In other words, inspiration is God breathing out His words. It's not Him being impressed with some inspiring words or ideas that men come up with and He blows on them and they magically become the Word of God. They don't start with human inspiration. You know, he didn't look at Paul and say, Paul, you're a pretty smart guy. In fact, what you're writing there is pretty impressive. I think I'm going to put some special God dust on it. I'm going to blow on it and turn it into something. No, that's not how it works. God breathed out, and they wrote that which God wanted them to write. Secondly, it doesn't mean that human readers are somehow inspired like when they read a great poem or look at a great piece of art. In other words, inspiration has to do with what God's written, not what happens to us when we read it. So, some people will teach you the Word of God becomes the Word of God when you read it and it says something to you. And really, a lot of people today, on controversial issues of human sexuality and marriage, they will look at Scripture and say, well... That's what God said. That's not what God says because I don't like that. And what you're saying is, I'm going to determine what's inspired on the basis of how it makes me feel or what it says about my loved ones. All right? So, how have other theologians defined inspiration? I'm going to let you read that. I'm just giving you some, some great definitions. So, last question. What does inspiration have to do with Scripture alone? Let me give it to you very quickly. Number one, the Bible is God speaking to us in a unique way, unlike any other book or any other being. Listen, the Bible is God speaking through His written Word. The Bible doesn't contain the Word of God, and you've got to sift through it to find it. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible doesn't become the Word of God when it makes me feel good. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible doesn't sit passively waiting for us to make it say something. Uh, a, 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 a pastor of a leading church who is going off the rails, denying hell here in the Kansas City area, recently said to his church, the Bible doesn't say anything. We have to interpret it. I about came out of my headphones. Here's what Martin Luther said, and he's biblical in what he says. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Number two, the Bible is God speaking to us with full divine authority. Full divine authority. And therefore, we submit to it. And in that way, it simply means this. All Scripture is breathed out by God, therefore it speaks with His authority. And we'll talk about that next week. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore it speaks with God's authority in whatever it says. Whatever it says, it's God's authority on it. And then finally, all Scripture speaks with God's authority for a purpose. To bridge the gap in knowing and glorifying God in all life. So here's what I want to say to you. I want you to be like the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
Paul commended the Thessalonians and he said this, You receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. If you're here and you're unsaved, and even if you are saved, do you receive scripture as what it is, the very words of God? That's number one. Number two, if you're born again and you're mature in the Lord, I want to challenge you with this. Be a Berean. Because the Bereans, the next place Paul went from Thessalonica was to Berea, and the Bereans were more noble-minded, and they eagerly received the Scriptures, and they searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. In other words, they put Scripture alone into practice. We encourage that here. Search the Scriptures and see if what you are hearing is the Word of God. Come and discuss it, and we will both open the Scriptures and find out. I've had people correct me on things I've said. I've had people challenge me on things I've said, and it's Bible, and I stick by what the Bible says. But that's the idea. Oh, man. Powerful stuff. Amen? And really, I believe that if you're born again this morning, your heart ought to be singing. The Spirit of God in you should be singing with the glory of having God's Word breathed out to us. Amen? Amen. I guess the question is, have we submitted our lives under it? And do we receive it with the authority that it truly has? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful again that You have spoken clearly. Some of these things are hard. They're hard to understand because, Lord, You're the one who is speaking and revealing And your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so once again, I ask that we will submit ourselves to the authority of your word. And Lord, by your grace, may we never depart from it. May we never let anything be equal to it. And may we never let anything be exalted over it. And Lord, like Tyndale, like Luther, like Paul, like our Savior, Jesus Christ, May we live it out with our final breath. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Read the Word this week.